Friday, December the 10th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, migrants died on the road in Mexico and Evergrande downgraded. First, the world in brief. At least 53 people were killed when a lorry carrying migrants to America crashed in Mexico. Most of the victims were from Honduras and Guatemala. Every year, thousands of Central Americans tried to cross Mexico via an increasingly perilous journey. The UN estimates that more than 5,700 migrants have died in North America and the Caribbean since 2014. Nicaragua re-established diplomatic ties with China immediately after cutting its ties with Taiwan. The Chinese Foreign Ministry praised Nicaragua for making a choice that, quote, conforms to people's aspirations. America objected, arguing that Nicaragua's government, never having been freely elected, cannot reflect the will of its people. Taiwan is left with only 14 other countries to recognise it officially. Evergrande, an indebted Chinese firm, suffered a downgrade after Fitch, an American credit rating agency, declared that the property developers' overseas bonds, worth $82.5 million, were in default. Fitch also said that Kaiser, another troubled Chinese property firm, was in restricted default after it failed to repay a $400 million bond due on Tuesday. A block of relatively moderate Republicans in America's Senate made way for a Democratic plan to increase the country's debt limit and avert a federal default. Mitch McConnell, the Republicans' leader, joined 13 others in allowing the Democrats to raise the limit on borrowing by a simple majority. The ceiling might otherwise have been hit next Tuesday, precipitating a financial crisis. A federal appeals court rejected Donald Trump's bid to shield White House records relating to the January 6th Capitol riot from congressional investigators. They could be released in two weeks, though Mr. Trump will probably try bringing an appeal before the Supreme Court. Separately, New York's Attorney General will seek to depose Mr. Trump next month as part of a civil fraud investigation into his business. Italy's antitrust regulator fined Amazon, an e-commerce giant, 1.13 billion euros, 1.28 billion dollars, for abusing its market dominance. It is one of the biggest fines imposed on an American technology company in Europe. The watchdog said Amazon leveraged its position to favour its own logistics service to the detriment of competitors. Amazon said it would appeal. Staff at a Starbucks in upstate New York voted to establish a union, the first in any of the coffee chain stores since the 1980s. Executives have fought desperately to prevent unionisation, worried it might set a precedent. Other Labour campaigners are in an uproar about Kellogg's, a cereal maker, deciding to sack 1,400 striking workers earlier this week. Fact of the day. 3 to 3.5. The average number of people one person with the Omicron variant could infect. And editor's note. Whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we want to hear from you. We're launching a listener survey, 
so you can tell us what you think about our podcasts and so we can find out what you would like to hear more of. To take part, visit economist.com slash briefing survey. That's economist.com slash briefing survey. The link to the survey is in the description. And now, here's today's agenda. Driving cars and trucks apart at Daimler. Vehicles sporting the three-pointed star have cachet. But the parting of ways on Friday of Daimler's lorry-making arm from the company manufacturing Mercedes-Benz cars and vans acknowledges that these are two different businesses. Spinning off 65% of the truck division to existing shareholders is intended to create two companies that can specialise in what they do best. Car buyers care about brands and fancy interiors. Businesses with goods to transport are concerned with the cost of buying and running vehicles. Splitting has the advantage of giving investors a choice between which businesses they prefer and both should eventually be worth more apart. The lorry business $25 billion or more. The two branches have similarities too. Both are racing to electrify. The car division recently announced a 60 billion euro, 67.8 billion dollar investment to step up the pace, and both are suffering from a shortage of semiconductors. Despite continuing to share a famous badge, in future they will tackle such problems separately. Germany's new Chancellor calls on Macron and NATO. As Franco-German tradition dictates, Olaf Scholz will, on Friday, make his first trip as German Chancellor to Paris. Although the French President, Emmanuel Macron, and Angela Merkel, the just-departed Chancellor, learn to work well together, the French hope that the new German government will be more instinctively supportive for Germany's coalition agreement refers to European, quote, strategic sovereignty, a Macron catchphrase. Mr. Schultz also worked directly with Mr. Macron on the early design of the European Union's 750 billion euro, 846 billion dollar recovery fund while serving as finance minister. There will inevitably be moments of friction, however, as the new Franco-German couple settles down. One point of difference touches on the defence aspect of, quote, European sovereignty. For the French, building up an EU military capacity is crucial. For the Germans, NATO remains Europe's main security umbrella. After Paris in another signal, Mr Schultz heads to Brussels for meetings with European leaders and Jens Stollenberg, NATO's Secretary-General. Bosnian Serbs' secession moves. The Parliament of Republika Srpska, Bosnia's Serb entity, meets on Friday to begin the procedure of withdrawing it from Bosnia's key institutions. Republika Srpska shares these with the Bosniak, Bosnian Muslim, Croat Federation. Together, the two entities make up the Bosnian state. Top of the agenda, quitting judicial and taxation bodies and, most explosive of all, a proposal to found a new Bosnian Serb army. The whole process 
might last six months, and, if completed, would be secession in all but name. The likelihood of that happening without violence is slim. Milorad Dodik, the Bosnian Serb leader, is being egged on by Russia. Western countries have been sending envoys to work out what Mr Dodik will accept in order to step back from the brink. Last month, a survey by the UN found that 47% of young people were thinking of leaving the country, citing high unemployment and endemic corruption. Constantly quarrelling, the problems of ordinary folk are never high on the agenda of their leaders. Afghanistan's Frozen Humanitarian Funds Donors to the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund decide on Friday whether to transfer $280 million to UNICEF and the World Food Programme, two humanitarian agencies, to help alleviate the suffering of Afghans. The World Bank Administered Trust, worth $1.5 billion, was frozen along with other international funding when the Taliban took power in August. Given that roughly 75% of the Afghan government's spending was financed by foreign aid, the country's economy was devastated. Afghans have also suffered a poor harvest, caused by drought. Half of them now face hunger and malnourishment. The sticking point is American sanctions, which make it very hard to get funds into Afghanistan. America has assured banks that they will be allowed to oversee the transfer of aid money. But the logistics of aid distribution and the precarious state of the Afghan banking system will make it difficult to make sure the money is genuinely bypassing the Taliban. Even if funding is approved, dispersing it will be tricky. Footnotes our special report on Japan. Japan is on the global front line. In our latest special report, Noah Snyder, our Tokyo Bureau Chief, explains why and what the world might learn from its experience. In the rivalry between America and China, Japan has a key role to play. To delve deeper into Japan's relationship with America, its chief security partner, John Dower's classic Embracing Defeat is a central reading. Ezra Vogel's China and Japan takes a similarly magisterial sweep across 1,500 years of history between Japan and its big neighbour. Japan is a laboratory for learning how to be resilient in the face of natural hazards. Building Resilience by Daniel Aldrich explores the role of social capital when disasters strike, drawing on examples from Japan and beyond. Tokyo is the world's largest city, but also one of its most livable, making it a source of valuable insights for cities elsewhere. Japan's Story, a multimedia project from Harvard's Graduate School of Design, contains a delightful collection of essays, interviews, and visual ephemera on Japanese urbanism. Japan has the world's oldest population, but aging is a challenge many others, from Italy to China, will be grappling with in the coming decades. Akiya Mihoroku, one of Japan's leading experts on ageing, lays out some of the lessons learned so far in this presentation. 
secular stagnation also arrived in Japan earlier than elsewhere in the rich world. Economics nerds may enjoy this lecture by Olivier Bruchard, the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, at this year's edition of an annual conference organized by the Bank of Japan. It lays out some of the ways Japan's experience has influenced contemporary macroeconomic thinking. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Ada Lovelace, who was born on this day in 1815. The more I study, the more insatiable do I feel my genius for it to be. That's it from the Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app, or by asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening.